We're here on family day. Because as you said, Simon Douglas, this is the family we've chosen. Yeah. I don't know when that was determined, but I guess that happened. <laughs> I would have voted against. I would have strongly voted against had they, they said that. They actually tell you in basically every TED Talk about work is don't make work your family because it's not your family. I go, yeah. But then whenever it's this kind of time, it's always, you know, to the boss, it's your family. <laughs> then you're like, shouldn't I get paid more family? Like, we're not that close a family. Yeah, come on. We're like cousins. Yeah, let's see. Yes, second cousins. Let's <laughs> do this a solid. Help us move. Anyway, it's family day. I hope everybody's having a great day. Love you too, man. Yeah, I love you too. I love everybody here. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks for being here, everybody. Walking through, as I always say, when we work on the holidays, the, the zombie apocalypse. It's crazy. Getting that little preview of what it would really be like. Crazy. Walking dead style. When you wake up and you wander the streets and you look around and say, hmm, Okay. It would actually, this has got to be when they film stuff like that. Sure. That would be the smartest thing. Yeah. Is just try to pack in as much as you possibly can on a busy shooting day on a holiday Monday. I was going to say a mid-February dreary day, <laughs> freezing cold outside, get everybody up, get everybody on set and film, use the streets. You get, you got everything. Yeah. It's free. It's, especially <laughs> a city like this. Incredible stuff. Anyways, plenty to get to. Awesome Awesome UFC card this weekend that I'm going to break down at the back half of this hour. We had a record-breaking weekend in hockey and also the Leafs just ripping off wins. And now people are just coming up with horrible, horrible, horrible theories. But we'll discuss some of those with Haley Salvian. <laughs> I have Dan Bilesma today, which I'm really excited about. I was trying to book him for a while. Uh, there's just like a billion things to talk to him about. But he is someone who coached Tyler Bertuzzi for three years in Detroit, Bertuzzi obviously broke the curse this weekend. Uh, he actually was able to score a goal. It went off of his body. Matthews, the best goal scorer <laughs> on the planet, had to shoot it off of maybe Matthews' most impressive goal, really, considering. Had to shoot it off of Bertuzzi in the net to score. But yeah, Bosma, uh, also the coach of the 2014 Sochi team, so about the return of Canadian, USA, best-on-best best hockey and what that rivalry could look like in 2026 when we finally get it back 12 years, by the way, after the last time we would have had Olympics, Crazy. which is... Tough to swallow knowing Crazy. that it's been a decade since we've had best on best hockey. And yeah, it was NBA All-Star Weekend. So I'm going to start with this because I don't have a guest on this today. Maybe I'll do a little bit more if I end up having more thoughts tomorrow or on Wednesday. But here, here's the thing. If you didn't watch, that makes sense because you're an adult and it went late. <laughs> but there were over 200 points scored by one of the teams in the NBA All-Star Game last night. And this is before. Why is this a deal? Um, because Larry Bird, Indiana legend right? Before the game started, basically made a call, a plea to the All-Stars. He's like begging. Yeah. Hey, <laughs> please play some competitive games. Please. And for a generation that says that they all mold their game after Kobe and they all fight to say who molded their game after Kobe the most, they refused to compete in this NBA All-Star weekend. Adam Silver at the end of the game was as upset, I think, as you can be yeah. publicly with what he saw from the game. A showcase game on a Sunday evening at 8 o'clock. And, yeah, he basically, in his congratulations to the city of Indiana and then the, the owner, he trails it off with, yeah, and East, way to go. You scored 200 points, and that was kind of it. And he gave them the <laughs> nod. Everybody knew what was going on. After the game, LeBron James took to the podium, 
they asked him about it, and he even kind of expressed some displeasure, and he said, hey, it's something we've got to figure out, right? And he says, it's something we got to figure out. But he's also the guy that I would have thought would be at the head of figuring it out. Sure. And I do, I know everybody gets so hot takey with their stuff with LeBron, so you can't have a take like this and not have it sound as though I'm trying to be uh, an attacker of LeBron James. I'm a fan of LeBron. I don't think that there's very many holes in the resume. But to me, this is kind of one of them is, hey, LeBron, you never did the dunk contest. And that partially changed the dunk contest. Had you ever done it? You could have set a standard. Sure. Hey, LeBron, had you tried to be more competitive in the All-Star Games, you could have sort of set the tone. I think at this point of his career, though, it's too late. Yeah, he's not going to – I mean, what, he's at, he's at 40, going to all of a sudden start that's slapping it. the floor that's, and that, playing that's some it. D? It's, it's just – it's not his league anymore. And Giannis has moments where he's kind of trying. Carl Anthony Towns just shamelessly – Draymond buried him. That was the <laughs> biggest – the biggest winner from the entire All-Star weekend was Draymond Green who was perfect with Charles Barkley. <laughs> the, the two of them going back and forth was hilarious the entire time. Uh, it, was, it was actually spectacular television. Outside of that, the All-Star game was brutal. But where we land on this every single year is basically the same conversation. And I, I can't stand it because it's, it's always three types. One type is just the, it's for kids, shut up about it. Mm-hmm. You go, okay, great. Uh, just get out of my way. There's honestly. no point of even... <laughs> just, just go away. Just get out. Fine. If it's for kids, whatever. I, 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 all of this is supposed to be technically for kids. Our adults... So the All-Star game is where you draw the line where you go, this is for kids, but the other times you're watching men in pajamas serious. and shorts. That's when like, it's serious. That's, that's when it's serious business for you. Okay, sure, fine, whatever. Uh, just get out of here. It's all <laughs> under the same umbrella of entertainment. I, I don't know why the All-Star game gets labeled as the it's only for kids thing. Um, last I checked... It wasn't kids buying league pass and and packages and spe- spending money on these tickets. And if it is for kids, wouldn't you want to showcase that's a little bit more entertaining? I've said this before, but if the parents are engaged in something, that's more likely to get the kid engaged. Mm. So if you go to an all-star game, that's great. It's a cool event to be at. But if your parent is there going, wow, look at this. Yeah. Wow, look at that. Did you just see that? And guess what? How do you think I got involved in loving this sport? A big part of it was all-star games was watching All-Star Games with my dad and caring about the All-Star Games. And then that developing into a couple of years where you would, you would really give a crap about who was on the floor at the end of the game and hope that it was a close contest and that they were actually going to go at each other for a few minutes. This one, it was just over immediately. Yeah. Like The East ran up the score. There was no defense. They, they went up by like 30 points, and then everybody just decided to see who could make the most ridiculous shot and who could play the most passive defense. It was, it was a travesty. Like It really was. Yeah, it, was, it, was a, it was a really, really tough game, even by its standards. Then you've got type two, which is the, well, defeatist. There's nothing you can do to change it. There's, who cares? Okay, fine. And then there's three, which is, all right, how do you make this thing better? How do you actually, can, is there a way to do this better? Can you hold this to a higher standard? I think I fall in category three. I've just never been a, a, too much of a defeatist type. Mm. That's why I do this, is <laughs> I want to try to figure out a solution to things, even sure. though a lot of times it is maybe pushing a big boulder up a hill. But I honestly don't know what the hell they do at the All-Star game yeah. because it just it feels like the players have completely checked out on it. They're not going to try. And I think that the league should be a little bit more worried about this than... And I think that they are. That's why Adam Silver's doing it. Yeah. It's because 
you have a, an awesome Sunday post Super Bowl, post football, where you get to try to grab the attention of everybody else. And it's pretty famously known now that NBA ratings are down. Mm-hmm. That league interest, I think, is down kind of across the board. People, people will still root for their teams. But basketball had this cool thing of, well, it's supposed to be national. You know the storylines. You know the thing. But I think it's a league that a lot of people just follow through other media members. They yeah, follow yeah. it online. They're not watching the games All the as much. the social clips. Because, and... yeah, the games aren't as compelling as they once were. You can tune in, and it's like there's 30-point blowouts every single night. Yeah. You don't know which games are supposed to be important because the standings mean less and less. Well, I think that's a great point, too, because, like, it is a league where, like, unfortunately – the regular season matters way less. Yep. And, uh, you know, now the all-star game matters way less. And yep. so I don't think the NBA wants to become a league where, like, you really are just treading water until the playoffs start. That's and it. that's it. But that's, that's it. That's terrible. But that's kind of how it feels. The midseason totally. tournament thing now, in hindsight, is it's fine that the NBA tried to get creative with it, and I appreciate them trying to do it. But given that the Lakers won mm. and where the Lakers sit today and the feeling of it afterwards, even with the Pacers when they went into a lull, it's a little... Ah, it's going to be interesting to see how it operates next year. Let's For just sure. Say. Like, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how it's received because they kind of had a bit of a perfect storm and still now it feels mocked. I'm going to be honest, until you brought it up, I totally forgot that it even happened. Well, <laughs> but this is, this is the thing. It, I, I know... It's pretty easy just to simply go and blame the players, blame the players. But I, this this is one where I sort of do blame the players. I agree. And I think like you said, too, and like uh, I think a lot of people thought this, the whole Kobe thing, like you need that weirdo who's going to lift the level. And but, there's no yeah. one out there who's doing that. But you know? this is this is what I mean about LeBron. It's just yeah. kind of part of his legacy is that he was passive with the All-Star game. Mm. He always said when the the load management thing was going on that he wasn't going to be a load management guy and he wouldn't do that. And uh, LeBron's sort of been the dude who's just, hey, everybody do your own thing. Because LeBron carved out his own path. He started jumping sure. around and going team to team. And so he couldn't be the one that would criticize a guy like Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. He did change the NBA. I think a lot for the better when it came to player empowerment. But this is sort of where you see it get to a point where there's a disconnect between some of these guys and the fans. And when you're getting paid as much as enough where you can buy a franchise someday, which is most of these guys on the floor, yeah. right? Ah, it, can't imagine it's easy to get up for an all-star game. Sure. Can't imagine that they care. And it was sad for me to see guys like, you always know there's going to be some dudes that just do not care about the all-star game. And that's fine. There's going to be some guys that just, they, they can't engage in it. They can't do whatever. But basketball is not this crazy physical sport. Hockey is harder at the all-star game because you go, okay, sure. you can't have hitting. Football right, impossible. Football's impossible. You can't have hitting. But basketball, these guys play pickup games. Mm-hmm. In the summer, that is far more competitive than the All-Star game. And they play against each other. Yeah. They'll go down to the Drew League and they'll, they'll lace and things up. things will get heated and, and things exactly. will get like, Yeah. And so I don't understand why there can't be some measure of, hey, as a league, we need to try to take this a little bit more seriously because a lot of casuals watch this. We are trying to grow our game. Ratings are down. Everybody says that we're soft. Everybody says that we don't care. And then, boom, you end up having this where it's 200 points and it's Carl Anthony Towns just sitting <laughs> underneath the basket waiting for outlet passes so that he can dunk it and try to – I don't even know. I turned it off before they even named All-Star MVP. Who was it? Dame. Yeah. Who cares? Yeah. Who cares? You know why? Because he's one of the dudes who will try a little bit. Mm-hmm. He will stat chase and he'll pull up from three from deep over from and over half, and over again and he'll yeah. hit them. That's basically who wins All-Star MVP next year is who can stay 
the hottest from behind, like four feet behind the three-point line, yeah. the longest. And so Damian Lillard <laughs> has a big advantage because he's one of the better guys at doing that. So congrats, NBA. It was an awful weekend. The dunk bad. contest was horrific. Yeah. Like, my God, those judges. I'm sorry. It, it was weird because those guys, they, they, they bring in basically two G League guys now a year. Yeah. I, I bet on Jacob Toppin because I'd never heard of him sure. before, and I went, well, obviously. He, he got robbed. Good. He did get robbed. I was actually kind of <laughs> pissed off about it because I, I thought that was a good bet. And after he did that second dunk, I was texting yeah. everybody going, I told you, I told you, and yeah. then the judges robbed him. And they gave it to Jalen Brown because the props. And I thought, you know, Maybe we are at the point where it's either a year off or we just say, hey, no more putting on jerseys of former greats and doing the former great thing because it, it just it sways the judges too heavily. You got Dominique Wilkins on the panel. Why was re- that guy dressed up as Dominique I, I Wilkins? I still don't know. Does anyone never, understand no, never, why that guy was dressed up? As... I don't know. <laughs> the worst part is, is that I was rooting for Jalen Brown heavily because He's he was a star. In yes, the game. he was an yes, actual all-star 100%. that went to the dunk contest <laughs> and then he mailed it in the most. <laughs> And I went, I'm so conflicted here. Also, the three-point contest is completely dead. It's just done. With Steph Curry not in it, it just doesn't matter anymore. And, like, it was good that he did the shoot-around thing with Sabrina. Yeah, that was cool. That was fine. I Who cares? Honestly. It was, when she started raining buckets, that was actually the moment of All-Star Weekend. 100%. was the first rack. I went, oh, crap, this is really cool. Yeah. And then, yeah, the rest of it was kind of crappy. I got a thought to pitch at you for Saturday. We'll save it for later. Uh-huh. But, I, you know, later in the show, I, I got a thought about Saturday night and how to add some juice at all. Okay. Yeah. All right. Do that. Um, All right. Haley Salvian, senior writer at the athletic women's hockey analyst for CBC. What's up? Did you watch NBA all-star? Do you care about NBA all-star? Yeah. You did. Uh, I did watch. Yeah. And I think the highlight was Darnell Hillman just being an all-star hater. I hate him. (laughs) So I, I fashioned myself an NBA historian when he yeah. gave, uh, it was Jacob Toppin, the first dunk, right? The 46. He, yes. I went, are you kidding mm-hmm. me, man? He just went through oh, yeah. his legs around and old man Hillman was like, yeah, yeah meh. <laughs> Whatever. It. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was like ultimate hater stuff from Hillman and the judges. It, it really was, was. It got like, it got funny towards the end of just like, okay, this is absurd. I thought Mac's first dunk that he got, what, a 46 yeah, on from was Hillman was I loved it. unbelievable. No, I yeah. loved that. The that that was funny to me was because brutal. Mac McClung obviously needs this, right? He showed yeah. up wearing the Orlando G League franchise right. jersey, and I went, that's where you are, huh? I thought, he was like, I have no idea. Mac McClung, they basically need to be in the G League so that they can break him out for the All-Star weekend. I don't even know what he plays in the G League, whatever. They break him out. Guard? I don't know. <laughs> they break him out for the dunk contest, and this is his whole thing. And you know he's practiced all year long, and he does that first dunk, and they go forty six, and he had Hilarious. to sweat it out getting to the second round. Had they not robbed Jacob Toppin, he would have been in the second round. I I was sitting there laughing my ass off, going, "This is yeah. so cruel that you were going to take away the one thing this guy has and hand it to Jalen Brown, who basically just did normal <laughs> dunks that you would see any guy at Jaylen- like a YMCA do." No, I saw a tweet and it was so true. It was like Jalen Brown would have been so sick at the 1995 All-Star Game. He really would have been. He really would have been. would have been unreal. He was very much 95. Wait, so you have a hot take on dunks? It's not really a hot take. I just, the first dunk when he jumped over Shaq, I was like, okay, I, that was boring. Like all Mm -hmm. he did was jump, jump over Shaq. And I know Shaq is a very large man, but I was like, I just, I'm bored of them jumping over people. You need to do a little mm. bit more. I did like the jump over Shaq dunk, though, and Toppin jumping, jumping over his over brother. jumping over the two people 
Yeah. It was better. And then Jalen Brown jumped over a six foot, no, no, a five foot eight, like YouTube guy. I was like, what are we? Yeah, that, that was, uh, yeah. Also, I actually really felt for that YouTube guy because I don't even think he was five foot eight, but they just were, (laughs) they just put all over social media like this guy because he's out there with NBA players, right? Nobody knows. Nobody knows what you are. You're staying around NBA players. It's normal to look small. And then all of a sudden the entire internet went, this guy's five foot six. I'd never even heard of that. What is that guy? He's a YouTuber? I don't know. I know. I'm so old. I, this was bad. This is my first, this was my first year where I saw the names on the celebrity list and basically, the only people I knew were the athletes. Yeah. I saw Kelsey Plum kind of big league. A yeah, YouTube that was funny. Guy, I love that moment. The guy got so heated about it. I'm like, who are you? Like, I know. And he was like, you passed the ball, Kelsey Plum. I had more assists than you've had in your I career. Know. It's like, you're yeah. in the celebrity all-star game, my guy. She plays in the WNBA. It's not the same. No, but this is, this is, how, this is a great depiction of where we're at as a society, which is that people YouTube. think that you can do anything someone else can do because they'll be like i'll just watch a youtube video about it and so that's probably what that guy did learning how to shoot and now he thinks he's as good as kelsey plum <laughs> it's just that's the the way it is yeah i know it is really sad i hate that youtuber i don't know who he is but i hate his guts every moment they showed him he just made me irrationally mad i don't know if it was the way he carries himself the way he spoke whatever it was I, I was I was driven to near insanity watching that guy, even for five seconds. And everybody okay. knows who I'm talking about. Little blonde, short guy with matted down hair at the front who, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. had a painful dialect. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. That's the way he was. Anyway, um, mm-hmm. by the way, Mac McClung, Simon has alerted me to. He's averaging 24 points and seven assists, five rebounds a game in the G League this year. He's a star, so he deserves to be there. He actually deserves to be there. I'm sorry, Mac McClung. In the words of Shaq, I was not familiar with your game. Okay, yeah. um, let's move on from to something that actually seemingly mattered this weekend, which was 19,285 people at the Battle of Bay Street. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> obviously, you know, you've dedicated a lot of your time and life to women's hockey. And... Mm-hmm. This journey to get there has been so up and down and rocky and filled with spats and fights and empty arenas and people doubting whether the product could ever be successful and like a million different things, a million different obstacles that were in this thing's way. And all of a sudden it went from, again, failed leagues that had nobody in the building to this. And I know that it's an event city and so maybe they can't sell 19 every single night for this thing. Everybody understands that. But how has this been so successful so quickly when every other iteration of women's professional hockey has really been so, so difficult to get even a few people in the arena? Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of it's about the money, right? That's uh, obviously is a huge part of it. I remember writing a big story kind of about the history of women's pro hockey and like what makes this league so significant and different and necessary And looking back at certain things, like in the CWHL, um, I think it was like year 15, um, their expenditures for the year were like 1.2 million. That's the salary cap for one team now. Like the whole league in the past was spending what one team is just spending on salary. Mm. Um, So they just weren't spending a lot of money. They didn't have a ton of resources. Um, for long periods of time in the sport, um, the talent was dispersed, right? The CWHL had six teams uh, and then the NWHL launched and had a bunch of teams in the U.S. And then, you know, there was an exodus of American players to the NWHL. 
And then there was the PHF and then the PWHPA and it was about the money and it was about the confusion and, you know, just how all the talent was was cut up in between. And I think for a lot of fans, for media people, for just somebody on the street who's like, there's a women's hockey game in there. It was like too confusing and dramatic for people to want to get involved in, right? It was like, why are they fighting? Why are there two leagues? Which PWPH is that? Like, it it was was like, honestly, it was just confusing for people to the point where it was prohibitive to get in the door. Um, And that goes for fans and that goes for sponsors and potential investors, right? Like I've spoken with some sponsors and some league executives who said, you know, pitching, um, let's just say they're pitching. I, I won't use any names. I guess they're pitching like one potential sponsor. And the conversation always started with, wait, well, which league are you? Who's in your league? Mm-hmm. Why are why is there two? And now the pitch is, hey, we've got all the best players in the world in one spot. Mark Walter, uh, yeah, the billionaire owner of the Dodgers, he's frontlining this. Stan Caston's with us. So is Billy Jean King, uh, Mary Philippe Poulens, you know, leading the league in scoring. Nat Spooner's here too. Like the pitch is so much different now, and there's money now, and there's a lot more support. So that really is the biggest thing, and the fact that all the best players in the world are in one space. Um, and there's actual league staff. There's people who mm-hmm. work in marketing. There's people who work in ticket sales. Hillary Knight's not trying to sell tickets to her game in Boston anymore. There is, you know, a director of ticketing who works for the league, who works for Boston, whose job is is to sell tickets, is to get butts in seats. The games are available on Sportsnet, TSN, CBC. They're on YouTube now. Like, they've somehow figured out blackouts uh, in their first year, right? Like, the mm-hmm. games are accessible um, and I think, you know, you talk about the 19,000 on Friday and I was at the game and it was, it was honestly so cool in the sense that it wasn't even this big deal because it wasn't like, here's our Friday night showcase, like special event with the pom-poms and everything. It was like, this is a Friday night game between Toronto and Montreal with three points on the line. That just so happens to be at Scotiabank Arena with mm. 19,000 fans, you know, like it wasn't some, it was an event, um, but this was a regular season game at the end of the day. Um, and I just think like they're not going to get 19,000 every night. Like NHL teams don't always do that. But then mm-hmm. they go to Montreal two days later and Montreal sold out their building with over 10,000 fans. So like this league is just continuing to prove that there is a market for women's pro hockey when fans and people know that it exists and where it is. And it's like easier to get in the door. So I think the money and just getting all the drama mm-hmm. <laughs> um, kind of removed for the most part has been the biggest path for success. And they've got the right people working at the top. And it just seems a lot more smooth this time around. Yeah, it's it's incredible, the difference. Because, okay, I, I completely understand when contrasting it to the, I, I guess, the dark period between 2019 and this year where, mm-hmm. you know, CWHL folds. And it's all the stuff with Danny Ryland and, I, you know, I don't need to go over everything, but it's just, it's awful. It's, it's just, yeah, that's, that's what I mean. It was just, it was terrible. And I was the same way where I had almost no appetite for it. And I was like, I can't hear on this anymore because every time I ask a question to somebody, the answers are so different. And it's always muted with this undertone of like, well, you don't know this part of it. And this person felt this way. Right. And you're like, okay, wow, you mm-hmm. really let feelings get in the way of a lot of business. Like it was, yeah. it was sure. really difficult to hear about it or even speak about it. But before that, like the CWHL ran from what? It was over a decade, right? Like it was, yeah, yeah, it was 12 year league. And yet I went to some of those games and there was no enthusiasm whatsoever around it. And that's the thing I get more money, 
but those were all the best players in the world that were in one place. And it does feel like maybe something has happened in terms of the profile of some of the players throughout all of the drama that has yeah. uh, that has created something bigger about this game or maybe some more urgency about this game. Like, I can't quite put my finger on mm-hmm. it. I understand the money, and that is huge. But CWHL got put on Sportsnet too, right? Like, I remember... What, Barely. The f- but there was that one finals game, I want to say, yeah. that was the in last like year. In, 2019. Yes. That would have... Yeah. It was in Calgary, I, right? And it was just... But I remember the visual John. of it was yeah. horrific because they put <laughs> it on TV and there was no one there for the final. And I'm like, okay, well, if no one's even there, why would anybody be watching this on television? And it's just, it, right. the, the contrast is incredibly stark. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I, there's nothing that I can remember that's like this. I still think the money is a huge part mm-hmm. of it. Like the players were still working full time. They were never paid, right? Mm-hmm. So like in terms of the product, it's not going to be the same. Like if like take a player out of training full time for a hockey position and they're not going to be as good of a hockey player. Right. So players are being paid now and that makes a big thing. Like, so even the, like, you know, bottom six, middle six players who in the CWHL would be making zero money. They're not making a ton in this league, but they're at least like a full-time hockey player. They can train and just work at their craft and and the game's going to get better. Um, But I know what you mean. I think, I think part of it is women's sport in general is having a moment Right. And like women's hockey Mm -hmm. has been improving. The games are very fun. You've got, you know, young studs coming out of college like Sarah Fillier is not even in this league yet. And she's arguably Canada's best player, not named Mary Philippe Poulin. She's still in college. Right. There's a ton of U.S. players who are still in college who aren't in this league yet. So the game is just getting better. The players are getting better. It's getting more fun. It's getting more fast. People are figuring it out. But, yeah, I think it's just part of this, like, wave that Mm. women's professional sport is riding. WNBA numbers are way up. And WSL franchise valuations are up. Like, there are people – like, there are business people getting into women's sport because the ROI makes a lot of sense for them, right? Like, it is cheaper to get in the door with women's pro sport, and you'll get your return on investment quicker than spending, you know, $4 billion on a men's professional sports franchise. Like, we are seeing that Mm -hmm. happen in women's pro sport now because the product's good, people are believing in it, and they're just getting it in front of more people. Um, so I really think this is just kind of part of the wave that that women's sport's riding right now, you know? Yeah, so... People were talking about Caitlin Clark during the All-Star uh, game all the time, you know? Sabrina goes out and has that shootout with Steph, and everyone's like, oh, dang, she can shoot. Like, let's get Caitlin Clark next year. Yeah. You know, like, people are just talking about whether it's women's hockey, women's hoops, women's soccer. They're talking about it more... And it's just kind of this big, big wave that they're riding. I think that's a huge part of it. It's actually going to be really interesting to see what Caitlin Clark does for the WNBA because she's different in terms of. She plays. No, she'll play well, but that's that's the thing is, and I'm speaking about this from like now a guy's perspective. Most guys I know don't watch the WNBA. I think that's pretty well established, right? But a lot of guys I know actually care about Caitlin Clark, like are genuinely invested in watching her play basketball. And losing the college sports thing is going to be big, right? Because we all know how to root for college sports. We all know, like, okay, you can tune into Women's March Madness, can tune into the game against LSU. But I do wonder what kind of traction she could actually bring to that league if she starts to just, yeah, MJ that sucker. Like, if she shows up and she's just dominant in that league, it's going to be, yeah, I think it's going to be a real point of fascination what ends up happening there. But um, I, I want to think it'll be okay, interesting because WNBA players like they go into the league and rookies then have a hard time, yeah. right? Like Kelsey Plum set the record when she was at uh, Washington, and totally. it took her like three years to really find her way in the league. And I think like 
the WNBA can sometimes have that like individuality issue of like you got to go in and like now you were a stud in college but you got to go and just like be a rookie and play the system and like be a team player where like you don't actually just let them go and play their game like it's going to be interesting to see what Caitlin Clark does like in a different system where she's told like you got to earn your spot no they shouldn't do that they should just say no they shouldn't they should just say hey you can change our league actually you're you're the because like all due respect to Kelsey Plum I never once had a Kelsey Plum conversation outside of look how far she can throw the t-shirt at the at the basketball game into the crowd like that was the number one Kelsey Plum I've seen her play. She went to Washington. Like, I, that's the team I'm a fan of. I, I yeah. was aware of who she was before. I'm saying, like, it didn't, it didn't reach a point of, hey, you know, sure. this is getting to dudes. This is not. Yeah. Dudes are not sure. caring about where Kelsey Plum plays in the WNBA. She goes to a yeah. team and guys go, yep, we don't care. That was cool in college and now it's over. Caitlin Clark mm-hmm. is going to be a totally different animal in terms of people going, okay, what is that the Caitlin Clark team? Will be a thing people say. And sure. they will know where and she they plays. Let her play. Yeah, yeah. They'll, they'll know where she plays. But, okay, I remember a couple of years ago I talked to Jessica Berman, um, the commissioner of the NWSL, about expansion in Canada. And I was like, oh, you know, when are you going to get a Toronto team here, a Toronto team here? Because there was a lot of hype about that. And she told me something that was really smart that none of us really think about, which is you got to grow these leagues slowly. And the yeah. biggest risk you can do is try to jump and create something too fast, right? But you're already seeing this buzz. And I read your article up on The Athletic about uh, Friday night's game. And how, hey, they're selling out Mattamy. And what's Mattamy? Like a little under 3,000? 2,600. Yeah, okay. So it's too small. It feels anyways, it's a little too small. Because if you want to go to this game, the one thing it cannot be is like all the other games, which is cost prohibitive, right? That was my one issue about Friday night is I'm looking at ticket sales and it basically cost you 100 US to sit anywhere in the 300s if you wanted to buy a ticket late. You look at the Mattamy pricing and it's similar. Is that on resale? Yeah, that's on resale. But again, Mm -hmm. most people are not dialed into this. Most people want to figure it out after. Resale is the way that tickets get done now. Like if someone buys a ticket in advance for something, like a concert, a game, and anything. I'm like, whoa, you're the world's biggest fan of this, huh? Like, I got I, Avril Lavigne tickets. Yeah, that's what I'm saying is you're the world's biggest fan of that thing. Anyways, yeah, so, sure. so, <laughs> but it, yeah, but is there a case, can they figure out a way to get this product to Rico? Because I would kind of think that that is the ideal situation moving forward here where somebody mm-hmm. like me goes, actually, I'd like to go but I'm yeah. not going to spend, sorry, $200 to go see it because this it's competitive in this city for a ticket. I need this to be cheaper. I need this to be more accessible. I want to see more butts in the yeah. seats. When does this have that conversation or is that conversation already happening? Yeah, I just pulled up like a ticket reseller and tickets to go see a game at Mattamy are like $300 on That's what I mean. Websites, it's, there's no crazy. chance. That's like, no chance anybody's doing wild, that. wild, yeah. wild. Nobody's doing um, that. Yeah, I think I spoke with Jaina Hefford, who's the senior vice president of hockey operations with the league, mm-hmm. kind of about this. And, you know, they're happy at Mattamy. They, they think it's a great atmosphere. They love the downtown location and they've made it pretty clear they have no interest in leaving like the downtown core, right? Like they're not going to go to Brampton. They're not going to go to Mississauga. Um, I think that would be a mistake. Obviously, you want to be downtown well, yeah, no, Toronto. And so if you're looking, if you're looking for an arena upgrade, it's going to come by Coca-Cola Coliseum. Rico, oh, whoops, sorry, or, yeah, I forgot. That's what it's, it's called. Yeah, mm, awkward. Yeah, no, or Scotiabank Arena, right? I and, still call that ACC. You know, for, yeah, for sure. It's Sky Dome, whatever. Yeah. Um, 
And she kind of just said, like, everything's on the table in terms of what we're looking at for season two, right? And I think the kind of company line from the PWHL is, yes, we want to grow, but we can't do it too rapidly. Kind of what you said of, like, we don't want to get ourselves into an arena that ends up feeling um, cavernous or that we can't fill it. But at the same time, you don't want to put a cap on how many people get into the building or Mm -hmm. make it prohibitive to get into the door, as you're saying, right? It's like, I would love to go and see a PWHL Toronto game on a Tuesday night, but the tickets $300 on StubHub or Ticketmaster resell or whatever it may be. So I do think they need to look for kind of the next step. And I think Rico or Coca-Cola is the most obvious one. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, it's what I think it's just under 8,000 for a hockey game when it's the Marlies. I think that's the right number. I think, you know, if you can sell half of that, it's not going to look super empty because it's kind of a more intimate venue, mm-hmm. even though it is bigger than Madame. I think the issue with an arena like that, it's a heritage building, like that whole complex. So in terms of like making any kind of renovations that would be necessary to host a full-time women's pro hockey team, um, it's a little bit more difficult you know, do they have full-time locker room for a PWHL team? Is there a visitor locker room already there? Like they're not Mm going to use the Marley's room. Like that is their space, right? So is there two more locker rooms for a women's pro hockey team and the away team to use? Is there a training facility in there? How difficult is it to build those things if they're not already there? Like those are the big questions. And then I think as people probably listening to this know, like from Toronto, there's the Royal Winter Fair in the boat show. I mm-hmm. did game ops for the Marlies. Like I like threw t-shirts and stuff um, for a little bit when I was in school. It was super fun. But like we just wouldn't have any games for like a month mm-hmm. because the Royal Winter Fair was on. And it was just like, hey, the Marlies are on the road for three and a half weeks. Uh, we'll see you in March or whatever. I don't know when the ROM or the ROM G's. I don't know when the Royal Winter Fair actually is. <laughs> um, but those are those are things that you'd have to play play into it. Right. Like <laughs> you can't have a pro team in the city that you're trying to get excitement around and then just be like, they actually aren't here for the next month. Yeah. Good luck. Try to see them on the road. So I do think that will, I think that's their best option. I think that's better than trying to get in at Scotiabank and just covering up the uppers and trying to fill the lower bowl. Um, but I think we'll see what happens. But I, I do think that that game, the biggest thing I think it did was like confirm that the Toronto team can consistently play somewhere bigger than, than Mattamy. But yeah. I know the league is, is very happy there and they're not ruling kind of anything out heading into their next yeah. season. To me, that's just a simple one is you go, Hey, when the Royal winter fair is there, you just go back to Mattamy and you hang out there for a while. And then when it's gone, you go ba- yeah, back and play your games at uh, Coca-Cola. Stadium. What is that? I guess it's at the winter time. Yeah, it's in the winter time. I don't know. The only reason that I even know it exists and I've lived here for uh yeah, a long Big time. Horse guy? No, is that I have a friend who works in agriculture and so every year he comes and visits and it's always during this and that's the only reason I know it exists is he went, Oh yeah, that was a big thing and I went, Oh yeah, I guess so. Like I have no idea. I don't know why I'm supposed to know that or how I would ever know that otherwise. Like I, yeah. I bet you there's a lot of people listening to this right now. 
in this demo like that you. are just discovering what this is Idiots. and Googling what it is. No, I think that they're oh. figuring out along that this is an actual thing that happens no. in the city. Yes. It's like very popular. No, there's a lot of people who I'm not to saying that. it's not popular. Being like, you're dumb. No, there are How some people who are saying I'm dumb. From November 2nd to 13th. No, 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 no. That's not. There's nobody who says that <laughs> November 2nd. They're like, yeah, no, that's unless you are directly working the floor, you have no clue that it starts November 2nd. And I'm sure that that's not even every single year. Maybe it is. Maybe November 2nd. They're like, you know what time it is. It's like the yeah. X. <laughs> You'll just get yeah. like, yes, it's here. Okay. Uh, you covered the Calgary Flames for a very long time. Um, that's right. It was your second beat, right? That's right. Yeah, second beat. Um, so you're the person to ask. <laughs> don't don't laugh. This is a real thing. And I know you're connected and you you always, you don't let on uh, how connected you are. You let it kind of lurk and then pick your spots and, you know, you're, yeah, you're quiet about it. You're a lurker. You're quiet about what you know. So let me ask you this. You covered Brad Treerling for years in Calgary. How do you think he's going to approach this deadline watching this Leafs team? I think it's been pretty clear that they are aggressively looking for a defender, right? I think the biggest thing about Brad Tree Living that I can maybe share from my time in Calgary is that, you know, I don't know if there's been like a big press conference yet ahead of the trade deadline. I don't believe so. I think he spoke briefly about the Morgan Riley thing. But if there is going to be a Tree Living presser ahead of the deadline where people say, what's going to be your philosophy ahead of the deadline? Um, you can probably bet you're going to hear something along the lines of, I like to take my cues from my team. That is the big Brad Tree Living line around this time of year, right? Is like my team and how they are playing is going to dictate what I do and how I do my job this time of year, right? And I think what's interesting is the Calgary Flames well, I was there, it was either like, oof, like sell Sam Bennett, like move out of UFA or stand pat, don't do anything, just see what happens because they were very middling, um, you know, fighting for a wild card spot or like kind of out of it and not going to make the playoffs. Or, you know, the final year I was in Calgary where um, they were one of the best teams in the Western Conference, you know, Johnny Gaudreau's heart trophy candidate, Matthew Kachuk still there, Jacob Markstrom, Vesna candidate, everything is, mm -hmm. you know, happy and awesome. And, you know, Brad was more aggressive at the deadline, you know, particularly early, bringing in Tyler Toffoli on Valentine's Day. Then they bring in uh, Callie Yarncroke, who's now on the Leafs, of course. Um, so I think we've I've seen the two sides of Brad Tree Living of, like, I'm not going to do anything here because, like, you guys aren't playing well enough. Like, this is not a team worth adding to, and it's not worth spending assets on. Mm. And then I've seen a more aggressive Brad Tree living at the trade deadline. He hasn't been, like, a huge rentals guy, um, obviously bringing into Foley. He had term yarn croak, uh, I believe, was a pending unrestricted free agent when they brought him in, but I don't think the spend was too much. Like, I don't think they gave up a first for him, and I think the and if they did the crack and retain salary, I don't know the details of that trade, but you know he wasn't a big rentals guy in, in my time with Calgary. Um, but I think, like, and you don't have to cover the flames to know this. I think everyone says this about Bradtree Living is he's always working the phones. He's like very mm -hmm. aggressive and, and shopping and just getting the vibe of everyone. You know, just saying like, hey, what are you looking for? Hey, like, what do you think about this guy? Like, he's a very active general manager in the sense that he's always calling other GMs and my colleague at the athletic Pierre Lebrun's been reporting for a while now that like he's been very aggressive and, and looking for a defender. Um, the blue line search has been a very real thing in Toronto. If you kind of believe the insiders, mm -hmm. um, I think what Pierre said previously was that it's going to take a first rounder 
um, to get like a Chris Tanev from Calgary. So like if they're that far down the road, they're having those conversations of like, what do you, what do I need to do to get Chris in Calgary? And it seems like it's been, yeah, you got to give us a first round pick. Um, Pierre also said the Leafs have called on guys like Sean Walker and Alexandra Carrier from the Preds. Mm. So obviously if you're taking the whole cues from my team thing, like I, I don't know if I have seen like a Leafs team that's worth like going all in on personally. I think this Leafs team is good, not great. Um, But I think the obvious cue is like, if he's going to add, it needs to be on the blue line because it is like weak. And we had this conversation early in the season and you're like, what do you think about the Leafs? I think, and I said, I think their blue line kind of sucks. Uh, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm worried about their blue line and goaltending this season. Um, and so that's obviously a cue that that Brad is is taking from his team is that this this blue line's not good enough. Um, and then I think that they have that they're you know more top heavy this year than usual because the secondary scoring hasn't been there consistently throughout the season. So I think the other thing would be just trying to beef up the bottom six. But and, and the goaltending's been inconsistent. So when I look at those three things, like are you going to fix all three of those at the trade deadline? Are you really going to spend all these assets trying to fix A, B, and C at the deadline, or should you just kind of stand pat with what you have and try to fix your mistakes in the summer. Like that's where I get a little bit stuck. And that's not like an insight into Bradtree living per se. That's just like thinking aloud about this team. They've won three in a row. They're seven and three in their last 10. They're they're third in the Atlantic. Like this is not a bad team, but like, do you think you can fix all those things? No, here's, here's the thing. (laughs) People, I don't think anybody is still on the 10 F thing and maybe they do that. But to me, it's it's Tanev comes over with something else because, yeah, the idea of giving up yeah. a first-round pick for a 34-year-old who, yeah, uh, is a pending free agent is just see, mm-hmm. a, seemingly a non-starter, especially for this group, right? You said it is. If you're going to do the rental thing, and Tree Living did that with Yarncroc, but it was also salary retention. It was a second and a third. Yeah. And it was right. 50% salary for Yarncroc. But this is not that team. It's very clear that this is not that team, and everybody kind of knows that. The only thing to yeah. me is they've got... You, if you're talking about let the team dictate it, I don't really care about this stretch. And some people are going to overstate it, overrate it, whatever the hell. I don't care if you beat up on the crappy Ducks team. Uh, <laughs> it's nice that you do that because you don't always do it. That's good yeah, for the standings. then we don't have to talk about why can't the Leafs beat the Correct, Ducks. correct. But ultimately, before the deadline, they have a game against the Rangers, two against the Bruins, two against Vegas, one against Colorado. These are going to be the games now that actually matter. If Toronto can do yeah, something in these and actually show something then I wonder how much more aggressive tree living gets. If they show what they have in the past against some of these teams, then I think that it's a pretty stand pat position or pretty clear stand pat position. They take the question is when you're talking about, Hey, do you do your, uh, do you do all your stuff in the off season? I think the only way that they're moving that first is if it's for somebody that helps them get some business done ahead of the off season. And now that conversation... Like center, someone with term, you mean? Or somebody like Noah Hannafin, who has become the who real... Sign. But that's yeah. it. That's the guy that everybody's talking about now. And people don't know, seemingly, whether or not he actually will want to sign another Canadian market or what's going to yeah. go on in Calgary. Um, but the word is that it's seven by seven plus. He's mm-hmm. not one of the best defensemen in the NHL. He would certainly slot in very high with the Leafs. You'd have two yeah. left shot guys as your top two pairings. I think he's a true top pair. You think he's a true top pair? Okay. Because I was going to say that that's the other part is you've watched this guy a lot. 
do you like the fit there? Is he somebody that you would want to put with this core on a seven by, let's say, 7.5 or a little under? I think it's a little bit tough because I think some of Hannafin's best hockey that I saw was when he was on a pair with Chris Tanev, and you kind of have to, like, try to remove Tanev and say how much mm-hmm. did he carry that. But I think Hannafin is like a – Hannafin's interesting because he's one of those guys that is like good at everything, but not elite at one specific thing. Does that make sense? Like he's not, he Tanev is like the best defensive defender on the market. Right. So if you want that like rugged veteran, who's just going to get pucks out of the zone, he's got a good stick. Like I think to appreciate Chris Tanev is to watch Chris Tanev every day. Cause there's so many little things that he does. Like the stick details are great. Like that's not a super sexy thing. You're not noticing that on a highlight reel, but when you're watching him, it's just like, Oh my gosh, he's just like clinical in the way that he can get possession of the puck in the zone, get it up to the forwards and out of the D zone into the offensive zone. Like he is elite at that. Whereas Noah Hannafin's like a good defensive defender. He's a good offensive defender. He can exit the zone. He like, he's very good, but not elite at, like he's very good at a lot, but not elite at one specific thing. So I think that makes him a little bit more of like a versatile fit where it's like, do we want to put him on the top pair? Do we want to make him um, like, do we want to load up a top pair? Do we want to put him on the second pair to give us a more well-balanced top four? Like I think Noah Hannafin can kind of slot in wherever you want within the top four. But I think, you know, in terms of his all around game, I think he is like a true quote unquote top pair defender. Mm. Um, I think he's probably the only like true top pair guy available at the deadline, unless you want to um, look at a Jacob Chikrin or a Sean Walker. Mm. Um, and obviously, Chris Tanev um, is like the best defensive defender, in my opinion. But I don't know if people are saying like that's our our number one D because he's 34 and, and da da da. But yeah, I would like a Noah Hannafin fit. In Toronto, I think, yeah, the question is, do you want to spend if he's just going to want to sign, like, in an American market? Is he going to want to go – he's a Boston guy. Like, is he going to want to sign at home? Like, I, I, I don't know. Yeah. No, that part you can't handle. But if you get a read on it where he will sign here, that's the evaluation you have to make is how he fits with the core because it doesn't seem the core is changing because all of them got no-move clause and all of the money. Anyway, Haley Salvian, uh, senior writer at The Athletic, uh, women's talk analyst for CBC. Thanks, as always, for making the time. Yeah, thanks. See you later. Uh, okay, so I got lots of thoughts on Matthews. Everybody's talking about Matthews. I'm going to do that tomorrow. I got Craig Simpson on. So I'll discuss the evolution of his game a little bit. And I, I think that there's now a little percolation of, hey, can he get in the heart conversation despite being like 20 points back of Kucherov and mm. guys at the very top. But the goal scoring is now he's separating himself from the pack so greatly. Plus his meaning to this team for doing the MVP thing might be most important but yeah as of right now i still think you know we're less than a month away from the trade deadline and everybody every day is doing calgary 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 those that that's the team that has the pieces i just mm. I, let's just say i'm watching way more calgary now they're my number two team as i really try to shore up this opinion anyways let's take a quick break let's come back awesome weekend in the ufc winners and losers Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I might need a little more time for this at the end of the show. But UFC 298 was a banger. UFC 300 is an announcement. Yeah. Uh, You knew it wasn't going to be great when Dana White said that he was going to announce what the main event for UFC 300 was at 1 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) 
That was a t- that was a bad sign. And yet, no one thought it was going to be that bad. Sorry, but the UFC 300 card is a massive disappointment for fans that had been waiting a very very long time for that thing to get set up beautifully. I will say this though. 298 was brilliant. 299, I would rather pay for than 300 as well. So this is just the, this is what happens when you have the spreading out of talent and putting stars on different cards instead of just trying to load up a 300 event. And Ariel came on last week and he said it. They they think they can sell 300 because of the number that it'll do bonkers numbers just because it's UFC 300. I'm praying for my boy Max Holloway. Please don't get hurt against Justin Gaethje. I hate that he's in that fight. I hate so much that Max Holloway is just in there against Gaethje and the idea is just to exchange between those two. (laughs) Spooks me. Please just come out of there alive, Max. Uh, But 298, okay? Winners and losers. I'm definitely going to do more of this later. Number one is the Georgians. The Georgians at a (laughs) moment. Georgia... The Georgians are here. They've arrived. What a moment. Taporia was better than advertised. And I've seen him fight before. But Volkanovsky is an all-time great champion. And yes, he's 35 years old. And yes, they played up the old guy thing. And Simon, you said it. Like, (laughs) can't be playing the old guy thing and then get starched. Can't get knocked out and folded up. That's tough. I don't know why Joe Rogan spoke to him afterwards when he said that he was never going to do that again with knocked out guys after the Cormier thing, but whatever. Um, Taporia was brilliant, but Marab was arguably an even bigger breakout for the UFC. Like you have two guys, two Georgian superstars that made massive impacts on Saturday night and both now are going to be stars moving forward. I would think have a little bit more casual appeal moving forward. And so... I, that's just the number one thing to me. I, I can't believe how much Tapori is borrowing from the Connor playbook to the point where he's like got the tattoo on his back. He looks like he's crisp like him as a boxer. He's a brilliant fighter. He's trying to do the belt grab move. Yeah, yeah. He's got a, a cut country of Spain behind him, which is cool because we haven't had like a nasty Spanish guy in the UFC before. I think it's a massive, massive win for the UFC. Anyway, I'm going to get into this more because I have a ton of thoughts on this weekend, including some losers. But man, oh man, to have that kind of showboating and trash talking and just honest to goodness, great fighting was brilliant for the UFC this past weekend. Anyways, quick break. Let's come back. Let's talk to Dan Bosma. I'll never forgive the Leafs for ruining HBO's 24-7 series. Apparently, they were just such a pain in the ass to deal with that HBO just went, you know what? That's enough. We're good. We're good. The editors at the Toronto Maple Leafs wouldn't, let, wouldn't stop, wouldn't relent. But our next guest had still one of my favorite quotes ever from that series. Uh, he's the head coach of the Coachella Valley Firebirds, Stanley Cup champion, Jack Adams winner, Stan Bosma. How's it going, man? I'm great. I'm great. I'm curious as to what the the quote is. You know what the quote is. It's such a good quote. I'm sure people have said it to you a million times. Can you guess? Uh, I'm not sure. It's the scar. It's where you were like, I was a hockey player. It's like, damn, that's a cool (laughs) ass thing to say. It's like, I like my scars. Shows I was a hockey player. I remember watching that getting chills going, that's how you become a head coach in the league. Is you say that to guys that all of a sudden they're trying to block shots with their face going, I got to get one of those. Like my only scar from hockey is my friend Shane closed my pinky finger in the van door one time after practice. (laughs) That's the only one I ever got. It hurt though. Like, it hurt like a son of a bitch, man. I'm telling you, it was bad. 
Yeah, that's a that's actually a, a common minor hockey uh, injury. Yeah, Van Dorn. No finger in the car door. <laughs> yeah. I'll never forget, too, he didn't want to open the door because he was afraid my finger was going to fall off. And I was like, please open the door because it was my left hand. <laughs> like, I couldn't get across. I was just there stunned, only pinky finger in the door, no rest of hand. Uh, not a good one. My finger was definitely hanging. Not as cool of as a hockey scar as yours. So... Uh, you're with the Kraken affiliate right now. You're first in the Pacific Division. Your team's red hot, so congratulations on that. Uh, but yeah, seriously, how do you keep guys focused when you're in Palm Springs and it's most known for golf courses and you're coaching hockey players? It's uh, it's actually that's how you do it. Yeah. Uh, that's, um, I <laughs> think uh, a lot of golf trips, a lot right. of team bonding on the course. Yeah, clearly right now uh, Coachella is uh, a ideal destination for the American hockey league. As we, as we speak right now, I'm uh, walking out 65 degree morning weather and uh, the mountains are out behind the palm trees and the uh, golf courses within eyesight um, right now. So it's, uh, it's, it's a great place to, to come and play hockey. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, minus 13 in Toronto today. It's windy. <laughs> it's dark. <laughs> It's not as good. It's really, yeah, Palms Riggs, that's nice. That probably feels pretty good being there. I, 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 could, I could be down for a quick trip. Although I really screwed up Palm Springs when I was there. Uh, actually, the, the first time I was there, I was a kid, and I decided to do the celebrity tour. I got on a bus. I was there by myself. I was at a cousin's baseball tournament, and I was like, oh, celebrity tour. This sounds cool. But it's like when the celebrities live there, they're all from, like, the 1930s. And I was a kid on a bus with a bunch of, you know, uh, elderly people, a bunch of blue hairs watching, like, where yeah. Dean Martin lived. And I had no idea who any of these people were. They're like, this person played Catwoman in 1942. And I went, okay, get off the bus. We're going to look at her headstone. Big mistake. Big mistake by me. Uh, but, okay, you you are really in this interesting position. It's, it's very, like, I don't want to say Ted Lasso-ish, but... There's something very cool about getting to be the head coach of an expansion team in a non-traditional market. Like, you know, this thing comes together. You become the head coach. I'm curious how it's been different from your other experiences, given that, yeah, this thing got started from scratch. Yeah, totally from scratch. Expansion team, new team, um, you know, new area, new building, new new fans. Uh, We had no idea really the – the success we would have with uh, the community and the fans and uh, obviously in a, in a non-traditional market. Mm -hmm. So it was uh, ground up. Um, It uh, was a a new beginning in a lot of ways for the players uh, also for myself. And, and uh, it's been, it's been awesome to, to, you know, they, you don't necessarily put together a team. It's uh, Ron Francis, the Kraken and and Jason Mm -hmm. Bottrell. Um, expansion draft was a part of it a couple years ago, but, uh, you know, we're a new organization and so we're, we're, we don't have many drafts, uh, to have. So we were kind of like an expansion team. We were free agent, uh, free agents. And, uh, again, players from the expansion draft were, were coming to the, to our organization, but it was a completely, completely new experience and it was one to, well, a great one to build from the ground up and and what we've created here in Coachella Valley with the weather the fans the community the building it's a, it's a special place and then in turn we've uh 
had a special team the last uh, year and a half, uh, winning a lot of hockey games. Well, it's cool because, you know, getting to build a new team, you get to try to do things differently, right? You get to try and impose the the changes that you would maybe want to see uh, and try to leave certain stuff behind. But I would imagine still, though, as a head coach, when you're just focused on winning in your group and, you know, you've got player development, that's a huge part of what you've got to do at the AHL level. Does, does all the other stuff that has surrounded being a team that start from scratch make your job harder? Like, how has it been from a practical standpoint for you? Yeah, just definitely, um, you know, the, the whole organization was, was, uh, was new and new to hockey in a lot of ways. We, you know, from a, from a building of the team to, mm-hmm. to travel, to training camp, to, uh, it was, it was new forever. And we're, we're, uh, bringing high people to the hockey for the first time. So there wasn't an infrastructure built into the team. There wasn't uh, how to do things. There wasn't, uh, you know, this is what we've done in the past. This is how the, the Firebirds have done it, and this is how we're doing it. It was you, you start from literally square one with, with everything and everyone. And uh, there was, uh, you know, last year in particular, uh, we started without a, a building being finished until December 18. We played 22 games away from Coachella Valley. Oof. Started in Seattle for a month and a half and, and played a few home games up in Seattle, but uh, we had 22 games away from the Valley to start the season. So there was a, um, a lot to ask of the players. It was a lot to ask of the, the group. And we definitely had, uh, you know, some some growing pains. Uh, but I think they were they were positives for – they were positives for the team and they're positives for the organization. Well, it's also cool too. There's something about being a, a hockey person and a hockey fan, uh, especially in a market like that, where when you bring someone into the game and they have that initial excitement for it of discovering it, where you really it, it, like hockey is very different from the other sports in that way, where it's like you get excited seeing someone else learn about the game or come to the game in a different way from the other sports. And like, that's always felt like a bit of a Canadian thing where we really nationalize our sport. We always really want uh, whenever America gives us a little bit of attention, but I'm sure too, as an American who's been in it his entire life, there's that added feeling of it too. Like, Hey, this is an awesome sport. You should be watching this sport. This isn't a niche sport. And you get excited when you're in a market like that too, or there's some kind of reinvigorization for you seeing yeah people experience this for the first time like is that the same way or is that more of a canadian thing no it was it was a really quite unique over the course of all of last year and we're um, seeing the benefits of it this year in Mm -hmm. our fans but we we are we stepped off the plane and in december 18 come to come to coachella valley and we didn't quite know what we were going to get in terms of our fans in the community and and we, as you as you mentioned about the population in in Palm Springs, in the area, um, it's older. We had a, it's a, it's a, there's an older population and there's snowbirds and mm-hmm. uh, we thought we might get uh, a group of fans that were snowbirds and Canadians and and we have a lot of people from Seattle that come down here in the winter and and so that's what we saw at first. We saw um, you know a building with snowbirds we saw a lot of plates from alberta um manitoba we saw british columbia we saw a lot of those uh car license plates in the parking lot and as the season went on 
um, you saw more and more people from the community um, from Southern California. You saw Ducks jerseys and Kings jerseys. You saw Shark jerseys. And and at the end of the season, we go into playoffs, and as you know, the 180 days is up, and we were losing a lot of the fans that we had during the season, but they were being replaced by uh, people from uh, the area that were coming to hockey maybe for the first time mm-hmm. or had been distant fans of of the teams in the area, the teams in California, but didn't have a hockey team of their own. And by the end of the playoffs, the building was filled with with uh, young, old, um, new fans. And uh, it was a completely di- different atmosphere, almost, uh, you know, a, a Vegas type atmosphere to the building and it was uh, great to see um, just a, a whole different realm of fans coming to our games and the atmosphere of our games is is uh, pretty pretty special that it's it's not maybe a traditional hockey atmosphere it's mm-hmm. more of a, more got a soccer feel to uh, not quite as great as soccer fans are but uh, a, a little bit more like a soccer feel to the the energy of the fans that's great. And, you know, we established that you're a hockey lifer. Like, you've been around the game as a player, a coach, and, uh, yeah, God, long, long time that you've been doing this. And, yeah, but I, I'm, I, we spend a lot of time right now talking about, hey, the state of the game and where it's going and why it's happening this way. And I've had guests on talking about, you know, professionalization of youth sports and the way that's impacted a sport like hockey that for a long time uh, had, a, a like, a passion quotient that – I think was a little bit bigger than maybe it is right now, but you're, you know, you're now with an AHL team where it's a younger group, right? And I know you've got some older players. I know you've got some vets on that team. Like, you know, for some people, former Leaf, Connor Carrick's with your team. Um, but coaching younger players, are, are you, are you noticing like a significant difference in terms of the way young guys need to be coached? Do we overstate that as outsiders right now? Like has the game from a coaching standpoint, changed as dramatically as we in the media and some outsiders make it seem from time to time? Like what has been your experience with that? It's a good, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I think that my, I, I don't see the, the, the players entering the game now, or the younger generation being uh, the pe- the things that have changed. I I feel like the things that have changed is the is the coaching. If, if we're talking about going back ten years and going back twenty years, I think um, I I think it's probably the, us, the coaches that have needed to change and that have changed and that are coaching differently than 20 years ago. Um, you know, there's, uh, I, I, and I don't know, maybe that's because we it, it need needed to change or um, maybe that does mean the generation has changed and that these players need to be coached differently. But mm-hmm. I, I don't, uh, I don't see, um, the coaching that I got, maybe let's just go all the way back to when I started and talking in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see that type of coaching or the type of coaching that I got work 
work very well. Okay. Uh, so um, I think it's we we have we have changed, and uh, I, I think that's a good thing. I think um, I I I love coaching uh, in the American Hockey League. Um, uh, these players have a place to go. They have a clear goal in mind. We're developing them. Uh, they want to get to the NHL, and um, they want to get better, and they want to have the answers. And um, I think as a coach, you uh, you have to provide it for them, and not just not just uh, open the gate, not just blow the whistle for for uh, for practices. You got to provide them with the answer. Because uh, they have a high motivation level to get to where they want to go, which is National Hockey League. Yeah, I just when I the, the way it seems to be going, like obviously there's some things that did need to change, and that's happened in all of sports. But usually there's like a period of overcorrection, and I wonder if we are in a little bit of that time period now, especially when you're maybe not as heavily as the AHL level for you right now. Like I'm sure that you're comparing and contrasting or that you have at least in certain points because, yeah, you do hold a lot more power in terms of sway of who is going to get a call up to hit their ultimate dream, their ultimate point of destination. But that, yeah, it's gone from more of a the power dynamic of a coach has certainly shifted. Like outside of the just, you know, ability to... Uh, I'm trying to think of a word outside of, you know, uh, the way I want to say it <laughs> with a player. Uh, but you, but I think everybody can kind of get the gist of what I'm trying to, uh, to drive at here, but that maybe it's more of trying to figure out like connecting with the players in a different way, but establishing that authority. Like you just said it of, you know, giving them the answers, giving them the tools that maybe the power dynamic has shifted more from like player coach to partnership between the coach and the players. I, I, yeah, I, I, that, that may be a good way to look at it. I, I just looking back in my career, I, there's, you know, I, I learned, uh, there's some skills and there are some things that I learned at 26 and 27 and 29 years old mm-hmm. that I, <laughs> I was well into my, my professional career and, and you know, made the NHL at 26 and 27 uh, and I'm, learning things about the game, about skating, about the game that I had never been taught, I've never been told. And I, you know, I've had a lot of coaches in the path of professional hockey, but I, there's lots of things that I had to figure out on my own. I didn't get, I didn't get those from my coach. I had to do it through, you know, trial and error and I had to do it with you know, butt my head up against uh, the wall, so to speak. And um, I, I think, I think uh, as a, as a coach, I, I view my role to um, whether it's be a partner, but I'm, I'm their help to get to where they want to go. I'm their help to get to be the kind of player they want to be. Mm. Yeah. Um, it sounds like it's harder to coach now. <laughs> Just <makes> it, <laughs> it sounds like it's way harder to coach now. Like that answer, I'm going, God, this is hard. This is really, really hard what he's, what he's got to do. Uh, okay, so the original reason that I wanted to have you on was because the, Olympic, uh, the Olympics were coming back to hockey, and I was trying to think about like who would be cool to chat with about those times, and then I was looking at you know what you're doing right now, and I'm like, oh, I got to talk to him about a bunch of these things because this is pretty fascinating itself. But you know, it's sad because you were the last head coach of the U.S. men's hockey team, 
and it's been a decade since we've had best on best hockey yeah. at the Olympics. And I'm sorry, with all due respect to the tournament that we tried to throw here in Toronto with uh, the under 21 team or the young gun team and the team Europe yeah. mismatch. It's just, it wasn't it. It wasn't it. And everybody knew it in the city right away. It didn't pass the smell test and that's why people weren't going. And it wasn't really a, a yeah, celebrated event that had a, a long life cycle. But yeah, it's going to be 2026. So 12 years, three Olympic cycles, or sorry, two missed cycles is what we're going to end up having. What it, what is it? What did you think of when you first heard that it was returning? Like, what is it going to mean to U.S. hockey, especially that has been chomping at the bit to show how much they've closed the gap between yeah teams from the past and and the Canadian teams of now? Yeah, I I think in you know I think for for hockey I think. It would be tough to to find someone who said the Stanley Cup wasn't the the biggest prize, of course, in in our sport. But I I I think the a gold medal in the Olympics is is equally as it's right there with that answer of the Stanley Cup being the greatest. The gold medal in the Olympics is is a special thing it's a special tournament and it's uh i think everybody um wants to see that or you know it's it's not always been able to do it but everybody wants to see that best on best uh represent your country olympics gold medal is is as as special as you know winning winning the stanley cup so to hear a three, to, you know, to hear that we were going to be able to have, have it return to our our nations, and you're going to be able to represent your country in the Olympics, and the chance to win a gold medal is is, you know, it's it's one of the greatest things. It's one of the greatest stories in our sports that you know, at least mm-hmm. for us in in the U.S. 1980 in the U.S. Uh, winning a gold medal um, in Lake Placid. So I'm yeah, super, super pumped to. to be able to have the Olympics back and to have it be best on best. And, um, it's, yeah, it, it, it just, it creates a, a great story and it creates some great anticipation for what we're going to see with, uh, the, the best players in the world competing and in competing for a gold medal. Well, it's especially interesting here because yeah, for the last, um, yeah, the, these last two cycles, USA hockey has gained on Canada in a very noticeable way. Like you're seeing it pretty much every year at the juniors. You're seeing it every year at the draft. You're especially seeing it because now we're back to creating fake rosters of who we think is going to be on each team. And you look at the American side yeah. and you're like, whoa, that's way better than it used to be. Uh, that's actually pretty terrifying considering the way that things used to go. And yeah, like I, I think back to Sochi, the thing about that was Canada was just to me anyways, I don't know, you know, you probably feel about it differently being the coach of the Americans, but <laughs> the gap between Canada and the rest of the countries, I don't think has ever been that stark. Like the blue line Canada had, I still think is the yeah. best that'll ever be assembled. The dominance they had in that tournament was incredible. Again, you guys had a talented team, but how how has USA Hockey taken such a step forward over the course of the last decade where we've gone from, hey, this is not a conversation to, oh my God, they, they might win? <laughs> That's exciting for me. Yeah, it's That's not for me. Know. I hate it. I don't even like hearing you laugh like that. Like, take uh, this is over. This interview is over. <laughs> no, but seriously, how yeah. does this happen? Well, I, I think, you know, it's still the challenge for Canada. It's like, I, I feel like we, we were, 
we were talking about it with the guys in the room a couple weeks ago and like you know i would it would be a it would be a challenge to put together a 13 for canada mm-hmm. like canada's you know there's canada's still um, probably deeper mm-hmm. and you go you know to put a team together for canada is extremely difficult you're going to be leaving off um, some really, you know, some, not some really good hockey players, some great hockey players. And you could have a second team and you could, you know, you could have a third team mm-hmm. uh, with, with the roster that Canada has. But I think, you know, now, you know, maybe in the past, maybe 2014, we certainly, we had a lot of tough choices and we left some really, really good hockey players off. And, but, now you could start to think about putting a second and a third team together for the U.S. and you still have good hockey players mm-hmm. to round out. And so, it, I just I think the, the quality of the player and the depth of the player. Um, you look at down the middle and you're like, whoa, that that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. And and uh, that's not pretty good. That might be, you know, equally as good as staring across at McDavid and and so you have. You have the depth and the quality, and you're, there's going to be a lot of tough choices. There's going to be great players that don't make the U.S. team, um, and it's you know right right down the lineup for the defensemen and, and the goaltending. And so it's you're looking at you know you're looking at just uh, awesome and, and the depth of the the depth of the the pool is just is a lot lot deeper now, and it's just it's amazing to see where. Over the course of the last ten years, the program, the in Ann Arbor and the World Juniors, the the depth of, of USA hockey is continues to get deeper and deeper, and 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 that just means you guys have a, a a bigger pool of quality of players at the top. Yeah, as a Canadian hockey fan, I hate it, and it, it really does. It is scary. I want it. I I really hope Canada in twenty twenty six beats the brakes off you guys and that we can sort of put this to bed for a little while. But as of right now, I will say that this is by far the, yeah, this is by far the closest that it's ever looked in terms of a a top end talent between the two teams and going roster for roster. Like, um, and actually, you know, the, the year you coached, it was famous for the, the TJ Sochi thing. If people remember that, Oh, she just nonstop in the, the, like taking advantage of the rules of being able to shoot the the shootout like over and over and over again and being nasty. But people, I think, will very easily forget that Phil Kessel was the leading points getter at that tournament. He's in Vancouver right now uh, trying to attempt a comeback bid. And listen, this would be a failure of me if I didn't try to ask someone who coached Phil Kessel at a tournament he was having a lot of success at if they had a good Phil Kessel story from the time coaching him. <laughs> uh, well, I... I... I don't have a great one. I I, I was uh, super excited, curious to coach Phil. Mm-hmm. Um, he had Phil's got a lot of notoriety, and um, there are a ton, there are a bunch of stories uh, about about Phil. But I was uh, I actually was amazed at just uh, the quality of player that he is, the mm-hmm. speed that he has, and the and the puck skills and his shot coming off the wing and um it was it was uh he was enlightening to see in person he was a, a, a extremely good hockey player and he has it uh in a you know he's just got a, a quiet um 
little bit smug way about himself with a, a maybe maybe a, a voice that you uh, turn your head at and yeah and look at it. I was gonna so say, are you uh, not gonna do the voice? Because everybody does the voice whenever yeah. they tell the story. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna, no, I'm okay. not gonna do. Yeah, it's, it's head turning though. It yeah. is head turning. <laughs> yeah, it's I I love everybody does the voice. Like whenever there's a story, people can't resist actually doing it, and it's my favorite because almost everybody's spot on. Like somehow it's an easy voice to do. Uh, but yeah, it's just I think that there's something about him that's very much like you know how uh, baseball players like or let's just not even say baseball players. A lot of athletes used to like smoke cigarettes, right? And we were like, oh my god, that's so crazy that so many guys used to smoke cigarettes. And I think with Phil, one of our fascinations beyond the voice is that it's the confidence of a guy um, like that, like where he'll step up to Ryan Reeves and be like, yeah, I can beat you in basketball, no problem. And he steps up, he's terrible at it. And watching the, the video said he's got this insane <laughs> amount of confidence that he is a great athlete, like across all sports, apparently, like, you know, you put him in a ping pong tournament, he's incredible, golf, all these different things. But yeah, the confidence, but also that it's like a throwback diet of someone who will be like, you know, there's a story here of he was basically telling the Leafs, like, if you take away the soda machines, he's not going to play hockey. <laughs> you know, it's just, there's not too many guys yeah, like that yeah, anymore yeah. that are drinking as many, like, sodas no. as a guy like Phil Castle. Yeah, a Snickers and a soda between periods. <laughs> yeah. I, I was told about it, and I was looking for it. That's, yeah. That's... <laughs> but you got to let it happen when he's leading your team in scoring, and you go, like, yeah, I guess, get him another Snickers. Get it in here. Hurry up. Hustle yeah. up. Yeah, you know, the the European tournaments uh, usually provide you with a unique dis- display of, yeah. of the the candy or the chocolate or the the flair of the of the nation you're in. So it's it wasn't Snickers and, and it was soda, but uh, it wasn't Snickers, but it was might have been Nutella and yeah, uh, some other form of chocolate in between periods. But it was there. Yeah, so that's Phil. So I got, I got two more guys I want to talk to you about that you coached. One is a guy that's playing here right now who's been struggling to produce and who had two of his best seasons with you when you were in Detroit as an assistant. Um, Tyler Bertuzzi, he finally, he, he scored the other night, and I think he had gone something stupid like 18 games without a goal. It had just been uh, an annoyance for him because he does a lot of things well, but he just wasn't finishing around the net. But again, you were there the two seasons that he broke out, and he scored 20 in both. Um, I'm just, I'm curious what you thought was the best way to get the best out of Tyler Bertuzzi. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a good question. I think it, like, you know, it, we talked about coaching and, and, uh, screaming and yelling and putting them out the door is probably not the best way for Tyler, but he's, he's also one who he needs to feel good to play good. And, and um, he's an uh, emotional player, as in when you emotional, where you you feel good, um, you feel good about yourself, you feel good about your game, you play your best, and he's you know he's a he's a competitor, and he's a um, his strengths are his competitiveness and his nature, and he's a bit of a um, uh, it's not the prettiest game, mm-hmm. um, it's. It's style. Uh, scrappy. It's scrappy and it's uh, it's battling and and he's got to feel good about the about him. He's got to feel good about his game, and you're going to get a high compete level. It's not may not be the prettiest game in the planet, but um, his skills don't jump off the table at you as you know if you're putting together the perfect hockey player and you're looking for the 
best skating and the best feet and the best hands, and the best shot and the and the best vision. Um, you might not mention Tyler Bertuzzi's name in putting together that, but he it's uh it's scrappy and competitive and dirty and and when he's feeling good about that, he's playing good and, and uh you know, he's I, it's, I I haven't I, I to be honest the Leafs are not the team that I watch the most of in, yeah, of course in the hockey league but um, I would would like Tyler to feel a little bit better about himself to to and feel good about his game to 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 see what he's adding because uh, the few games that I watch he hasn't scored but he's that's he's a competitive. You know, scrappy, get it dirty, get it ugly, get in front of the net, get it, play in the corners, and and just get the job done. And and uh, that's 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 when he's at his best. And and uh, I I I think that would be something the Leafs uh, would really want to have in their in their lineup. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because in, in the way that you're speaking about him, you got to wonder if maybe after breaking a slump like that and because a lot of the stuff you're saying he's been providing this year and it's why even in a market that's as critical as this one, he hasn't been criticized as much as a player who would get a big uh, financial ticket, even though it is just a one year deal. Like he was there was a lot of promise, especially coming off of the playoffs that he had had. But people do recognize, like, he is in those dirty areas, that he is a scrappy player, that he is a really underrated playmaker. It's just the puck has not gone in from to the point where people have wondered, and myself included, like, if he's cursed, if there's a curse, because he's just, he's, <laughs> he's bouncing pucks off of, you know, wide open cages off the post, like, and you could kind of see the frustration start to carry in his game. And now that he's been able to get one and he's kind of break this scoring streak with what you're saying about the confidence of the player, that maybe this is going to start to unlock a little bit of just that now you can kind of get back on a roll when, yeah, you've been in a slump for a very long time, finally see one goes in. It, it can just loosen things up for a guy like that a lot. It, and I, you know, I, he hasn't uh, had a ton of chance to be able to do it in his career up to this point, but mm-hmm. I, he, I, I do feel he's a, he's a playoff type player. He's, He's gonna. He's he wants the opportunity to to be able to do it in the playoffs. Gonna when he gets it, I think he's gonna have a you know a, a chance to be an impact player at the important times for the Leafs. Mm-hmm. Last one, and then I'll let you go. You've been super gracious with the time. Uh, obviously, you're Sid's former coach, and Penguins at risk of missing the playoffs again. There's one year left on the deal, and Sidney Crosby is still one of the best players on the planet at age 36. Could you ever see him parting ways with the organization and try to pursue winning somewhere else? Uh, well, they, you know, I, the answer to that question is, is I, we saw Wayne Gretzky move from Edmonton. Mm-hmm. And so the answer is it can happen, but I, I, I don't, uh, it's hard for, I think it's hard for, it's hard for anyone to think that it's possible. Yeah, that's how I feel you know, about it. It, 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 it can it, it can happen it, for sure. It happened to it happened to Wayne Gretzky, but I, I you know, I I have a hard time uh, picturing anything but a Penguins jersey on Sidney Crosby 
Uh, maybe Team Canada. That one goes yeah. on them pretty good too. Yeah. But we like that but, one. Uh, it seems like that one. Yeah. Um, but uh, I have a hard time picturing uh, a different jersey on Sidney Crosby and and uh, um, shoot. I yes, the Penguins, uh, you know, are in the fight right now to make the playoffs with probably twenty. 30, 28 games left, mm-hmm. but uh, he's still playing at uh, he's still playing at such a high level. He's still one of the best players in the game still, and I, I just see that. I just in my heart feel that keeps going with the Penguins. Oh, me too. I just I'd I'd love to see him get another chance to win somewhere. It's weird always seeing those images like. Nobody likes the pictures of other superstar players, like the greats yeah. in the wrong sweater. But yeah, just <laughs> I really yeah, it would be a real shame if the rest of Sidney Crosby's career ended up just being you know trying to scratch and claw your way to the playoffs and then not really having a true path there. Uh, Dan Bilesma, again, congrats on all the success this season, man. Um, yeah, uh, thank you so much for making time for us today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, thank you. Hey, take appreciate care. Appreciate the time. Yeah, of course, Dan Bilesma. Head coach of the Coachella Valley Firebirds, HL, yeah, uh, Stanley Cup champion, Jack Adams winner. Uh, guy who's coached a lot of different players. It was fun to go over his resume and just kind of pick through the different things that that we could talk about. Anyway, yeah, I just, yeah, uh, it's weird the Sidney Crosby thing because, oh, he's so damn good. Yeah, he's so damn good, and he's going into his final year, and uh, you know, seeing him get traded. Ugh. How do you do that? What he means to Pittsburgh, what he means to hockey, what he just means to that sweater. And that's such a cool organization too. Like you see it with the Yager night. And yeah. Like Lemieux didn't play for anybody else, but it's just Sid. It would be so, it would honestly be so weird to see any other. I know, but on. it wouldn't, but it would feel so good to watch him go try to win a Stanley Cup, like in Colorado with Nathan McKinnon. Sure. Right? Some, somehow. I, and I'm just picking... It just, that one just feels always has felt natural to me. Just because of the McKinnon stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. There's something about Colorado where it's sure. just, you know, all stars can go there. Like, we're Ray, all Ray there. Borg, you know, Ray it's like, that's the spot. <laughs> whereas you can go there and win a Stanley Cup and it's sort of, uh, it's sort you know, of okay. Switzerland. We give, a, we give it a pass yeah. somehow. Yeah, exactly. You get a pass for going to Colorado. Stars go there. Anyway, uh, let's take a quick break and hit the rest of what we missed. Sportsnet 590, The Fan. All right, so before we get to what we missed, just want to wrap up my thoughts on UFC 298. Almost coughed. <laughs> Good recovery. Yeah. Yeah, so great. <laughs> that everybody noticed and looked at me weird. It's like, wow, what a recovery. That's what you want. Stuck the landing. Yeah. Come on. Uh, I mentioned that the Georgians broke out. Taporia was incredible. The boxing is so crisp. The Connor parallels are certainly there. He called out Connor McGregor, but he's not getting Connor McGregor, okay? Connor's not fighting Ilya Taporia, especially since he'll lose. Uh, Connor's fought, I think, four times in the last five years. Uh, he's 35 or 36 years old. The UFC is clearly trying to push him back to a card that they'll probably put some not so great fights on. They're certainly not putting any champions because Ariel Hawani mentions champions UFC get pay-per-view points and you're not putting Conor McGregor on with champs and giving them a, a, a taste. 
So Ilya Tapori is not getting that taste, although he would love it now that he's a champion. Oh my God, would he ever love it? Would he love a chance at Conor McGregor? Ain't going to happen. There was a little time afterwards where he basically said, Volk's a nice guy, and so you want to give him the rematch, but he also said it's time to move on. It's weird with Volkanovsky because he's an older fighter who had this dominant reign, this incredible reign as champion. He's unbelievably well-liked. He's got the best walkout song in the business right now. He's known. He gave Max Holloway a rematch, who was a famous champion. Uh, he actually gave him two, two fights because one of them was controversial. But, yeah, I don't know how that fight goes differently. And now you've been knocked out in two straight fights, and we've seen this with older fighters. It's difficult, and, yeah, um, you, you let him get knocked out once again. It's tough. I think yeah, you kind of have to give Volk the rematch because there's nothing else really there for Taporia right now. Mm. It doesn't feel as great of a rematch as it should. And now the Volkanovsky decision to just fight Makachev on short notice and getting knocked out by him looks like a disaster. Uh, maybe the finances of it were all right, but from a legacy standpoint, we had Volk looking like the greatest pound-for-pound fighter on the planet. And then in less than a year, he's a guy who's been knocked out twice and it looks like the career is over. So he's a huge loser in this as much as Tapori is a winner. We'll always have Volkanovsky as an all-time great. He just, he has to be. But yeah, seeing a legend get folded twice by two also going to be awesome champions because don't get it twisted. Tapori is going to be a champ for a while. He's really good. There was a hilarious moment of Sean Strickland celebrating the wins of Marab and he's like, yeah, just what I wanted. I went, that's what you want, Marab and Taporia? Because I think that those two guys are going to be champions. Really good champions. Anyway, those two looked amazing. Marab just showing off to Mark Zuckerberg and bending Henry Cejudo's neck in front of Zuck, <laughs> pointing at him, giving him, <laughs> dapping him up after the fight. That was a, a real star-making moment. Marab is a, a star now. He is a star. He is a person that when he is going to be on a card, people are going to go, you got to watch this guy fight. Same with Taporia. And that's what the UFC wants is they want fighters that I say to you, trust me, watch this guy. You're going to feel bang for your buck. You're going to be able to understand the way he fights, the pace that he fights with, the, the, either the pace, the boxing, the style, the energy, all that stuff. Both those guys were incredible. Like I mentioned, Volk is a loser. It's, it's, he just is. It sucks. It really sucks. I was rooting for Volk last minute. Because the pricing was Taporia plus 125, I jumped on that. I couldn't help myself. I was like, I have to bet against Volk. This is just a stupid line. And then, yeah, it turned out to be that way. The other loser is, to me, Ian Gary. I was texting. I was blowing up Helwani's phone about it, and he was telling me to relax. But the crowd booed him, and they were right to boo him. I'm not relaxing on this. This guy had a huge opportunity. This was a star-making card. Two guys grabbed the opportunities, became stars. Another guy in Robert Whitaker, who's already a big name in the UFC, just showed what he always shows, which is that he is just a gamer. He is a warrior. He will battle. Took a ton of damage and still found a way to come back and, and beat Costa. Awesome performance from Bobby Whitaker. Big winner from the card. But these two guys had breakout performances, and here is this tall, lanky, cool, kickboxing Irishman who... We know doesn't train in Ireland, doesn't fight in Ireland, doesn't have the cachet in Ireland as some of the other stars that have come from the region. But God, does the UFC know how to market an Irish star? And would they have loved to have had the next great Irish guy? And he goes out against Jeff Neal, and it's pretty much a 
weak points fight, a lot of him on the cage, a lot of him dapping up Jeff Neal weirdly, where it's like he wanted to be his best friend more than he wanted to beat his ass in the cage. And I, I hate that. I hate that attitude from a fighter. I'm all for respecting your opponent. I get that. But doing the multiple every time a guy breaks with you, doing the dap up in his corners, yelling at him not to do it, and then going up against the cage and basically winning a crap split decision. Huge, huge, huge loser is Ian Gary. I don't want to watch an Ian Gary fight. Who cares? They, like Joe Rogan was losing his mind because he loves kickboxing and that's his thing. So he was hyping him up the entire time. Ooh, every kick. Yeah, he's, he's, he can kick. Cool. He has no personality. He's, <laughs> he got eviscerated by Sean Strickland. I'm sorry. And it's like, yeah. He came out kind of before the media and he was kind of a crybaby about it. He has been the entire time. And then he was, it's like, you're going to put that performance down after you're saying you're going to pick apart Sean Strickland. Like, mm, I don't know, man. Anyway, doesn't look like a great one to me. Looks like an interesting fighter. Looks like he could beat a lot of guys on points. Looks like that range is a problem for fighters to deal with. But in terms of like a star that the UFC was hoping for, they went two for three. They went two for three on that card, which is great. You'll take two for three. Two for three every single time, but Ian Gary didn't see it. Did not see it. So 14 and 0 or whatever in mixed martial arts, but I, I'm guessing that that number the, on the back end is going to change fairly quickly as he fights a little bit of stiffer competition. Anyways, uh, what else we miss? What? I just want to, yeah, yeah, I want to talk a little more all-star stuff. Oh, just yeah. Okay, cool. I got some, some more thoughts. Yeah, so first me. off, three-point contest. You are out on the three-point contest? I just think if Steph's not doing it, then who cares? So it loses some juice. Yeah, I think Steph has to do it. And uh, I understand why he doesn't feel he needs to do it. But sure. this is what I'm talking about with the stars of the game and the greats of the game is if you don't care, then why, why would I care? we? Sure. And so not having Steph Curry in it when he's clearly the best and he put together the best round, it's like, just do it. And I would say this. Next year, I would just throw Sabrina Inescu and... Caitlin Clark into in the, the three actual, point. I yeah. agree. Just Hard go agree. throw them in the yeah. three point contest. Don't make it a side spectacle. Yeah. Just say, Hey, these two are actually in it because they're shooting with the WNBA balls. They're shooting from yeah. the, from you got to re-rack it. You got to change good. it. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Like Easy. let them do it. I agree. Yeah, definitely agree. Cause I actually think that does put more pressure on the field. Sure. You want to win. Yeah. What is starry? Huh? You know, like it used to be the Sprite ball. Now it's oh, the yeah, Starry yeah, ball. Yeah. Is that just like, like a pop that's in the States that's not here? I've never heard of it. I don't know what it is, um, but I will say this. Uh, I really wish it didn't exist. The problem is, is like a lot of guys do shoot that three. And sure. so having it be a part of it actually does make some sense. It was funny to see Dame. Like Dame was yeah. better from those. It seemed no, like that, that, for sure that. he was. For sure he was. And so I get it being a component. But to me, for the three-point contest, I would have wanted two things, which is get rid of that ball. Yeah. And two is actually you should penalize guys if they step on the line. Like, I'm sorry, but oh, the, yeah. the Carl Anthony Towns thing, <laughs> no. they went, oh, you know, they were joking about it during the broadcast going like, why are you snitching? And I went, yeah, kind of, but no. It's not a long two contest. Yeah. Like he's, he's clearly half a foot over the line yeah. on these. I get it if your toe scrapes one. Sure. But when you're setting up your entire jump shot from the corner, which Correct. is the threes that you should be knocking down the best and you're just stepping on it over and over and over again, I went, all right, this kind of sucks that you're not calling that so no i didn't like that so, i just three-point contest seems dead to me really quickly before i pitch my saturday night thing yeah, sure. uh led court hated it so yeah. much sucks it's disgusting and honestly i know that they tried to make it so cool but it was distracting and i did not enjoy it there was that i, I didn't watch a lot of the celebrity all-star game i'll be honest like no oh no, god of course I, not. I only did because i was at work it yeah, was awful. I, I threw it on for like a second when i was just flipping between that and pwhl 
and uh, they had one thing where they were like, whoever's heating up and gets the hot thing, like yeah. they were trying so NBA hard jam. to incorporate it. And I went, I can't even see the ball. Yeah. I can't see what's going on because the court is so distracting. So cool that they put that in there, I guess. Worth a shot, I guess. It was, uh, no, it was a, desi- it it was was a, a failure. Weird. And they kept trying to gas it up and everyone, it was basically an edict. Like you couldn't talk poorly about the court. And I went, yeah, but this court sucks. Yeah. This court clearly sucks. Why would I want this? This is the whole thing with the NBA right now is they're trying to throw all these things at the wall. They're going like, what about LED? What about AI? What about AI we put the Google or the Apple headset yeah, on you yeah. and you can sit in a seat? And I'm like, how about just the players care and play games and a little bit of defense? How about the players play games and the games matter more? Yeah, that, how about that? How about I they love care about the standings and about the games? Because if you just do that, that'd be great. I'm telling you, man, I, I, I get... Uh, uh, my antennas are up for if there's one league that's just non unstoppable, it's the NFL. NFL can do whatever it wants. People are going to watch like the Taylor Swift story was hilarious because it's just like another league that can't lose yeah. and continues to find a way to win. I think baseball is on the come up in that it did some really great rule changes and it's dominating in local markets. It has the summer. It just, it's a great sport to go to live. This city loves it. I think baseball is doing the right things. It's in the right direction, right trajectory right now, minus the free agency stuff. That's a little weird with, you know, four of the guys sitting out in free agency. The two leagues that I'm concerned about are NHL because they keep overexpanding and they're losing a lot of physical play in the game. And I, I think that that sucks. I think you need to have the NHL feel like a physical league with hitting and passion and caring and some nasty figures. And to me, that's being bred out of the game to mm-hmm. a degree where I'm going, I don't want to watch the NHL if it's going to look more like the all-star game. I don't, I don't want to see purely skill. The NHL is supposed to be the sport where when other people show up, they go, man, this is nasty. These guys hit hard. It's a dangerous sport. You need to have that danger element. If you don't, you're losing something. But NBA, I'm telling you, is for a sport that was just winning, winning, winning. And we thought yeah, they had all the off-court drama. And with the NHL, we would say, oh, you know, they got to learn from the NBA, the way it markets itself. It's become a adult soap opera in the way that I feel like wrestling is. Like, yeah, yeah. I don't want to watch wrestling, but if I see a video online where it's a podcast of guys talking about why CM Punk is a bad guy, I'll watch that, even sure. though I never watch CM Punk. Yeah. I feel like the NBA has the same appeal right now where you want to hear about the storylines and everybody cares about LeBron, maybe go to the Warriors and the things that he says coming out of All-Star Weekend, but... Does anybody really want to watch LeBron play the Sacramento Kings at 10 o'clock on, at night? Yeah, like, Tuesday, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so let me quickly yeah. pitch this uh, all-star thing. So sure. what if we kind of did away with like just the dunk contest and whatever and almost kind of used some of the NHL skills thing and almost did like a decathlon style thing. You get like 10 guys who like all do the three-point contest. Uh, they all do the dunk contest. You, you get two dunks, high score, whatever carries on. There's like a, I guess you could problem. do a one-on-one thing. Here's you the could do the skills thing. The NBA is supposed to be a sport where everybody is different. It used to be the league where it was like there's Shaq and there's Moby anymore. But I don't want to see Giannis in a contest where it's like he's going to have to shoot threes against Steph and then he has got to go play one-on-one. Like it doesn't it doesn't work that way. you yeah. got to have it be positional. Maybe. And then the guys don't care about the actual game. So why no, would that's they invest the, no, no, in this? The, the like, biggest problem for sure is, and like that's even Ant said, yeah. I just read a quote of Ant saying like, yeah, this will always just be a all-star game to me. It's it's never going to be a thing. I was like, oh my god. Yeah. So this is it. This to me, I'm trying to think about solutions, but it it does feel like too far gone. The only hope that I think the NBA All-Star Game has is if um whoever becomes the next face of the league decided like someone on the come up, someone for like let's say Wemby 
Wemby shows up and he actually has cachet, I don't think he will because he's an international guy. I do think it has to be an American-born player. I'm just telling you, that's what I feel. I think like to have the across-the-board appeal, it's going to have to be a great American player who just says, yo, I'm, I'm digging in on this. I'm setting the tone. I'm setting the tone. And I'm playing defense the entire game and I'm going to try another guy's fall in line. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we got to go. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast. We'll be back tomorrow.